Good morning. How you all doing today? Excellent. Happy uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I noticed more of you were wearing sweatpants than usual today, so uh, just kidding. I didn't notice that at all. Um, but it's good to have you here, especially a welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. As Adam said, we're so glad that you've decided to join us for whatever reason, uh, and we're glad that you're part of our community today. Uh, my name is John Anderson. I'm part of the uh, teaching team here occasionally. And then more often than that, I'm overseeing our 10 local national global partnerships here, which all exist to help us move into relational service with the most vulnerable. The Christmas stores are just one of the things that I get to be a part of here. Uh, and before I kind of get into the message, I just want to take a moment and say that I am so encouraged uh, by the work that I get to do here because I get to witness what God is doing in and through so many of your lives, both in our community and around the world and how uh, you are sharing the gospel through both word and deed. And so just thank you for that, and thank you for the privilege of getting to work here and work alongside you. Uh, okay, now let's start off with a question. Here's the question. What is something that gives you hope? What is something that gives you hope? And, and I'm not talking about like hoping for a specific kind of gift coming up here in just a few weeks, but I'm talking about like what is the thing or things that gives you this expectation that the future will somehow be better than current reality. What is that for you? Now, I don't consider myself a, 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 exactly a hardcore sports fan, but I do enjoy my Wisconsin teams. And um, growing up, I followed a lot of different sports. Uh, but one of my favorites was baseball. And I think part of that was because I got really into collecting baseball cards. I have like, I don't know, maybe 30,000 or something like that. Uh, which, yeah, exactly. Now you feel for my wife, because I still own them, much to her disappointment. Um, so I'm sure she'd love to give a donation if you talk to her after the service. But because of that, like, I got really into stats and, and following all the players and, and throughout the season. Uh, but growing up in Wisconsin, the Brewers rarely gave me much reason for hope. <laughs> it's true. Uh, not as bad as the Cubs, but, like, still not great. This last year... Uh, honestly, when the season started, didn't feel that much different than usual. Back in like March and April, it was kind of like, yep, this is going to be another Brewers season. But as the season went on, there started to become this growing sense that like something special was happening. And right around like July, August, and then certainly into September, it was like full on like, this is awesome. We are so filled with hope right now because this could be the year. Now, during the season, I had the opportunity to go to a handful of games, um, with my kids and with friends, and that was fun. I love going to a baseball game. But then I had the opportunity to go to game two at Miller Park against the Rockies in the playoffs. And let me tell you, that was awesome. Hope was like almost tangible. Like you could feel like this team was going to the World Series. Who was going to stop them? And sure enough, we won that series, and now we were only four games away from getting into the World Series. I was starting to like change my schedule and, and make up that I was sick like a week in advance. I was ready. And then you know what happened. We ran into the Dodgers. And over a, a painful uh, seven-game series, my hope, along with lots of other people's hope, was shattered once again. <laughs> now, this sort of thing, when it comes to sports, this should not surprise us, right? This is, this is a common story. In fact, this should happen the vast majority of years, whatever your team, whatever your sport may be. But there's more significant things that we tend to put our hope in that are also uncertain. 
For example, maybe you uh, are hoping for this wonderful future of your life that is going to be funded by your retirement savings account. Or maybe it's, um, you've, you're in, new in a career and you're, you're loving it. It's awesome. And you just, your hope is that it's always going to just be going up and to the right. Or maybe your hope is that you're in your kids, that they'll just have a better future than you've had yourself. And these things, these are not bad things, right? These are actually good things. But if that's where we place our hope, then we're just one bad decision, one tragic moment from losing it all. But there's one source of hope that is both secure and unchangeable. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we, invite, we are invited to live in that hope. And when we do, it has the power to change everything. So are you with me? Like eight of you. Come on now. Are we, are we, okay, cool, great. Now, before we get into the text for today, uh, let me just catch up and make sure we're all on the same page. So right now we're going through a series called Good News for All People, where we're going through the letter to the Romans from the apostle, written by the apostle Paul to the Roman church. And so far, amongst other things, we've seen how uh, he's talked about how Jews and Gentiles, which is Paul's way of saying all people, are in need of saving. And they're in need of saving by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And the reason for this is because our relationship has been, with God has been broken apart by sin. And this is true of every human being who has ever lived. But thanks to the work of Christ, we are invited into this new life, into this new relationship where we are reunited with God. And we've already seen in the letter that Paul has repeatedly emphasized that it's by faith, not by works, not by anything we do, but by faith that we are made right with God. And in the passage that we're going to look at here in just a couple moments, Paul's going to be unpacking what happens in the life of a believer once their, life, or once their relationship has been made right with God. Now, we're going to be going through Romans 5, uh, verses 1 through 11, so kind of a short passage. But the book of Romans, as you've already witnessed, if you've been part of the series so far, is it's thick, it's dense, right? And so I'm really thankful that we actually have kind of a short passage. So we're going to take our time. We're going to pause a lot. We're going to reflect on this. And hopefully by God's grace, it's going to sink in what Paul is saying because this passage is awesome. So take your Bibles and turn to chapter, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. All right, here we go. He writes this. Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to pause right there because there's so much happening already. So look back at the first word. What is the first word? Therefore, all right. Your translations are all the same. Very good. Okay, so this word therefore is a clue that Paul is referencing back to a bunch of stuff he's already written in chapters one through four. So he's saying because of all the stuff that I talked about through one through four, therefore we have been justified through faith. Now justified, this is a... Uh, a not a normal word, or at least the way we use it in the English language now is not necessarily how it's used in this biblical context. Now, Paul, or I'm sorry, Mark talked about this a little bit last week, but let me just refresh our memories because understanding this word justification is key here because the rest of the passage is built on our understanding of that word, that concept. So this word justification, it had a rich heritage or has a rich heritage coming out of the Old Testament. So it comes loaded with meaning with a lot of history. And the word uh, is a legal term, and it literally means to, to, be clear, to, to be declared righteous. So God is saying, you are now righteous. And in doing so, there's this right relationship with God that's created. 
And it's because of Christ's death and resurrection that this new status is possible through faith. And so what that means for us is that we're forgiven. But not only that, we're invited into this new family. This family that's made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And together, we are part of the family of God. We are united under Christ. And all of us as a family are then given this new future where we're being made into the likeness of Christ. All that is part of what it means to be justified. And all of that is because of God's grace, right? Which is a good gift given that's not deserved. And so as we continue on in this, Paul's going to just continue or further unpack the results of this justification in the lives of a believer. So let's continue on in verse 1. And I'll just start from the beginning. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, here's what happens. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Okay, let me pause here again because this is so profound. I don't want us to miss this. What Paul is saying here is that when we place our faith in Christ, that we are now at peace with God. Now, this should take us back and give us images of the very beginning of the Bible when Adam and Eve are walking with God, when they're in relationship, when they're just hanging out and doing life together, and there's a normalcy and an intimacy and a majestic nature all wrapped up within that one context. And like Adam and Eve, we are welcomed into personal access to God. That's incredible. Now, maybe to help this sink in, let me give a couple of illustrations. Let's uh, imagine that you walked in today, and not only were you handed a bulletin, but you were handed an all-access pass. Uh, it hangs on a lanyard so you can, you know, not lose it. And quickly you find out that this all-access pass allows you, any time of the day, any day of the week, any time of the year, to go and walk into the Oval Office anytime you want. You don't have to go through security. You don't have to check with anybody. You can just walk in anytime you want. And not only can you just walk in, but you have the full attention of the President of the United States. Now, perhaps that's maybe just a little too politically loaded these days. Okay. Some of you are like, I don't want that. Others are like, that'd be awesome. And suddenly we're like, no, this is not unity. Um, let me build on this then. Okay, so maybe same pass. Now gives you access to the CEO's corner office of the world's largest company. And this person's busy, you know, they're running the world's largest company, but you can walk in anytime you want without having to check in with anybody and you have full attention of the CEO when you get there. Or maybe if that doesn't work for you, think about it as you have now passed into your favorite celebrity, whoever that may be, to come into their house anytime. You can be wearing PJs, you can join them for breakfast, lunch, dinner, doesn't matter, you are now part of the family. And the point is this, is that we have access to God, which means that we have access and an invitation into the proximity of power, perfection, and indescribable love. This is an invitation into a real and meaningful relationship with the creator God. This, is, this should blow our minds. This is what we're invited into. And it's in that relationship, the text says, that we stand in grace. And what in the world does that mean? That's another kind of interesting and, and unusual phrase. What does it mean to stand in grace? Well, grace, again, is a good gift that is given that is not deserved. And to stand in grace means that we 
are recipients on this ongoing basis from God of grace. It's not just, it doesn't mean that, it means that grace is not this just one-time gift that here it is, this is free this time, but from now on, you gotta earn it. No, no, no. What this is saying is that instead, this is a moment by moment reality for the life of a believer. It means this. It means that God's love for you is the same yesterday, right now, and tomorrow, and every day after that. And it's not dependent on you. It's not because of anything that you do. It's because of who he is. And it's in that space that all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, that's where we exist. That's where we live. Right now, you are experiencing grace. Now, the temptation here, I think, for some of us <clears throat> is to say, all right, that's nice, cool. Like, what's next? But hold on. Before we move on, I, I just want to note and share with you a common mistake I've seen uh, in Christians uh, over the years. And this is especially true, I think, for those of you who have been around the church thing for a long time or been following Jesus for a long time. Uh, and I know this mistake happens because I tend to do this. And it's this. I think we have this tendency to recognize and even celebrate that grace was something that we got back in the past. That in a moment sometime in our history that we receive grace and we celebrate that. We're like, I'm so thankful for that. But then as we try to live out our Christian lives, we get in this pattern of trying to prove our worth, our value by doing a bunch of good stuff and religious activity. And we just fill our calendar with it. And then we somehow feel like that's what earns our love with God. It's, it's as if it's in us that somehow we can accept a one-time gift. Like that's cool. And we're thankful for that. But then our brain tells us, like, you need to get back in the game and get to work. I think that's a really common thing for many of us. And, and there's lots of reasons for this. Uh, one is we live in the Midwest, where hard work and productivity are really common idols. I mean, that is like how I grew up. That is the right way to live, right? Amen? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Good mid Midwesterners. But not only that, just more broadly... We, work in a, we live, rather, in a works-based society where the wages we receive are because of the work that we do or the grades that we get in class is because of how well we perform. And that feels right to us. That makes sense to us. But we even use this in our, in our relationships. We use phrases like, I need to earn her respect or earn his trust. And we're reinforced constantly with this idea that the stuff we have or the way people feel about us is a result of the good or bad choices that we make. In our culture, it just, it, it tells us that our life experience, whatever it may be, good or bad, is a result of something that we have earned. Are you with me? And so this is why I think it is so hard for us to embrace and accept grace, not only as a one-time thing, but as an ongoing reality. But look back at verse two here. This is what it says. It says that our identity, who we are, is that we stand in grace. This is an ongoing moment by moment truth for every single one of us who has placed their faith in Christ. And this is countercultural. It feels uncomfortable. You're like, do, do I need, do I still need grace? Like, really? But it's also so good because it also means that God's love for you is profound and incomprehensible and it's because of his character and not because of what you do or don't do. So it's not dependent on you. And that is good news. And this grace that we find, 
and experience, this is where we find freedom from shame and from hurt and from the power of sin in our lives. But being present with this grace, it takes practice, right? It is not, because it's not part of our cultural experience, it is not natural for us. Now, there's an exercise that a mentor of mine has uh, encouraged me to do recently, and I want to share it with you right now. Uh, And this will be a little strange for a few of you, but I just encourage you to just kind of play along with me for a few moments. You're going to have to use your imagination. So imagine for a moment that you are sitting in a comfortable space. Maybe for you, it's uh, your living room. Maybe it's a favorite coffee shop, whatever it is. Just imagine yourself sitting there. And across from you is Jesus. And you're just hanging out. You're just going to have a conversation. And now based on these first two verses in chapter 5 of Romans, what do you imagine he would say to you? Now, as I imagine this scenario, I imagine it maybe something like this. Like, Jesus looking at me and being like, I love you. And I'm not, I'm not disappointed with you. And my response, our response might be something like, well, thanks, thank, thank you. And I'm, I'm really sorry about that other thing. Or like, thank you. And I've been trying. You're like, you've seen all the stuff I've been doing. Like, I'm, or thank you, but I've really been meaning to you. And it's all these things that are tinged with like guilt and, and shame. And I picture Jesus looking across and with just this like loving smile and shaking his head and being like, no, 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 no. I love you. I love you. Exactly for who you are right now. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Now I want to take a moment here and practice this together. And the reason I want to do this now is because initially I thought I wanted to encourage you to like do this after the service. And I was like, man, that's so hard. Like our lives are just not in tune with these kinds of moments. Um, And so we're going to do it right now. And what we're going to do right now is just take a few moments of silence together in this service. And I want to encourage you to listen, to listen for the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And just ask yourself, what might God want to say to you? And we're going to do this for about 30 seconds. There will be a prompt up on the screen, and then I'll bring us back together as we continue in the message. So let's listen together. Amen. All right. Now, what if God's grace really began to sink into the fabric and the core of your being, your understanding of how God feels about you? What would be the result of that? Well, this is exactly what Paul is going to talk about as he continues on in this chapter. So let's continue on in verse 2. Here we go. This is what Paul writes. Because of this, we boast in the hope and the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, check this out. Look back at this text. What does it say the result is of God working in our lives? Is we boast, like we're having a hard time even saying that out loud right now. You're like, is that right? I don't know. But we're boasting not in how great we are or anything that we've done, but how awesome our God is and how amazing our hope is in him. What this text is telling us is that Christians, of all people, should be great at boasting. Now take that as a soundbite out of context. (laughs) Now what does that mean, right? What does that look like? Well, I think in our, our modern era, what that means is it's what kind of stories we're telling. Because the kind of stories that we tell reveal where our hope is. And so what kind of stories are you telling? One of the things that I love about this place here at Door Creek is that we have something called Stories of Grace. And if you're uh, new here, these are stories that help highlight the work of what God is doing through individuals or through families. And this is an awesome opportunity for us as a church to brag on God and what he's doing in and through us. And so one of my desires, one of my hopes for us as a church, for Door Creek Church, is that we become more and more a place of storytellers, where we are quick to tell stories of how God has and continues to work in and through our broken and complex lives. And maybe think about it this way. When you don't tell a story, you are actually depriving the rest of us of encouragement of what God is up to. So don't hold it back. Share your story of how God is working in and through your life. And now, not only that are we to be storytellers, but also, Paul goes on to say, uh, we're not only to boast in God, but we are, he invites the audience to give praise in the midst of their suffering. What? Like, that is rad- that's got to be a typo. Now, a little context here, I think, uh, could be helpful. Uh, because at the time uh, when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, the average Roman, they knew hardship. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about Rome now, I think about a, a vacation spot that I would love to go to someday, uh, a place of rich history and beauty and food and the people and just the whole thing. I'd love to go there. But at the time when this was written, uh, for the vast majority of people, ex- except for the really wealthy, Rome was a place of incredible density, filth, uh, and danger. It was a so here's just an example of highlighting this, so, or to highlight this. So in Rome, at the time this letter was written, the population density was about 302 people per acre. Now, there's only like three of you who that means anything to you right now. But as a comparison point, here you go. Madison currently has four people per acre. So Rome was incredibly densely populated. But not only that, there was no modern sanitation. So it, it stunk. It was gross. There was no modern medicine, so when people got sick and it was contagious, it would spread like wildfire. There's no modern heating or cooling or so many of the other comforts that help make our lives feel like easy by comparison. And so life for the average Roman was hard. But not only that, Paul is writing to this small new faith community that's trying to follow Jesus. And because of this, they are experiencing all kinds of persecution. And so there's a genius to what Paul says here because he recognizes that Christians will experience suffering. It's going to happen, right? When you become a Christian, you don't get a pass from suffering. If anybody tells you that, that's false. But what Paul does do here is that he flips the script. He reframes suffering to say that it's a blessing 
instead of a curse. And he points out that suffering has the power to mature our faith and to strengthen our hope. That's incredible. So suffering, if if this is a helpful way to think about it, suffering is to faith what lifting weights is to strengthening our muscles. At least that's what I read this week. (laughs) And I I checked with the doctor. I didn't actually want to do it because that sounded painful. But here's what happens. So says the research. When you lift weights, you actually break down your muscles. And then when they rest, they rebuild. And the end result is that they're stronger when, when you began. And you repeat that, and they keep continuing to grow and get stronger if you do it the right way. Now, suffering has that same ability in our lives. It breaks us down. But then by the grace of God, it has the, the power to mature our faith and to deepen our hope. I love this quote from the author Parker Palmer. He writes about it this way, reflecting on his own life. He says this, Looking back, I see how losses that felt irredeemable forced me to find new sources of meaning. In each of these experiences, it felt as though something was dying, and so it was. Yet deep down, amid all the falling, the seeds of new life were always being silently and lavishly sown. Such a beautiful way to frame it. Now, here's a more straightforward way by uh, the theologian Richard Rohr. Here's what he says. If you are lucky, God will lead you to a situation you cannot control, you cannot fix, or you cannot even understand. At that point, true spiritual formation begins. Whew. Now, suffering is not something that automatically makes us into people of hope but it does have the ability to grow our hope through the power of God in our lives. And this hope is a hope from God that will not put us to shame. It's not going to let us down. And the reason for that is because it is grounded securely in our identity in Christ and who he is. This is a hope that looks forward to one day he will return and we will be with Christ for all times. And that day may be tomorrow. It may be way into the future. We don't know but it looks forward to that. And until that moment happens, Paul says to us that we have the Holy Spirit in us as a reminder of God's love and our hope in him. And now as he continues, Paul is gonna look at the how and within what context this secure hope has been made possible. So let's continue in uh, verse six. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 8, as just kind of a quick side note, is an awesome one-verse summary of the gospel. And so if you're looking... For a new verse to memorize or something uh, to challenge yourself, and this is not a huge challenge, uh, I would encourage you to memorize uh, chapter 5, verse 8. That is an awesome summary of the entire gospel in just one sentence. Now, in these couple verses, Paul uh, is describing God's love for us, and he's comparing it to our love for each other. And what he's saying is this, is that God moved towards us when we had no ability to reciprocate. Now, not only that, but if you cheat and look forward in verse 10, it says he moved towards us while we were still enemies of God. Whoa, (laughs) 
Let me just say this again. So God moved towards us in love when we had no ability to reciprocate. But not only that, we were enemies of God. That is hard for us, I think, many of us, to get our heads around. Like, enemies of God, that sounds a little intense. (laughs) And yet, God revealed his love for his enemies by giving his life for them. For us. For you. For me. I mean, how radical is that, right? Now, uh, by human standards, we might be willing to die for someone who's good or someone that we love. And we are deeply moved, and I would say rightfully so, by stories of soldiers dying for a fellow soldier in combat or for a parent dying for their child or for a couple that's in love and one of them sacrifices themselves for the sake of the other. And as we begin to look around us, you start to see that there are like countless books and movies and stories of all different kinds with these very themes in them. And there seems to be something in the human experience that is just intrinsically, inherently moved by sacrificial love. There's something beautiful in that. And yet, here's the amazing thing. This is what this is saying. That God's love for us is way above and beyond that kind of love. Right, Because God died for us while we were still enemies. Now, we've talked about this a lot during this series, but this here is yet another reminder that we have no room for spiritual pride. None. None at all. Because none of us have earned God's love or forgiveness. Our status was that all of us were enemies of God, and it's by grace that we stand in the very presence of God. And in that presence, we have a security of knowing that we are with him. And it's that secure place in Christ that then leads us to be a people of great hope. And Paul's gonna now focus on this future hope in verses nine through 11. So let's finish the passage today together, uh, verse nine through 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so what's happening here is Paul is using the logic of greater to the lesser. And he's saying, if God will do the thing where he's going to bring us back together while we're enemies, then of course he's going to save us from final judgment. It's like, if he has the power to do the one thing, then of course he's going to do the other. And because of that logic then, we know that therefore we have a secure hope in our future with Christ. That when one day judgment comes, and it will come, that we are at peace with God. And that gives us such a secure hope. Not only that, but it gives us another reason to boast. Again, not anything about us, right? But an in who God is and what he's done in our lives. Now, what does this mean uh, for us as we're about to leave here in just a few minutes and go back into our, our normal lives? What does this mean for us? Well, this section of Romans is all about how we have a secure hope in Christ because of grace, not because of anything we do. And this means that if you have placed your faith in Christ, that you now stand in grace. And if you are here and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ and you're exploring Christianity, this is what you're invited into. It's this secure, loving, safe relationship that is by God's grace. 
And when you're in that place, when God thinks about you, he's not disappointed with you. He doesn't think about you and be like, oh, I just wish they were just a little bit better. No, no, no. He's like, I love you like crazy. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And when we live in that secure love, it gives us a great hope, no matter what the circumstances may be. Now, one of the most powerful, or the most powerful, I think, example in my own life of this, of having a secure hope in Christ, regardless of the circumstances, uh, is from my mom and my bi- biological dad. Now, they, um, <clears throat> they got married when they were in their early 20s. Back, this was back in the 1970s. Uh, and not too long after being married, they got pregnant and had me. Uh, and then around my first uh, birthday, my dad started to experience pain in his leg and lower back. And so he went in for a number of different tests, trying to figure out what exactly was going on in his body. And what they discovered was the worst possible news, that it was cancer and the prognosis was not good. And at that time, he was 26. My mom was 24, and I was not yet two years old. And even in the midst of this incredible hardship, my parents found hope in their relationship with Christ. And even while he suffered, my dad took the opportunity to go around the area, at this time we lived in Eau Claire, go around the area and share his story. And then he had the opportunity to share his story with a number of different college uh, classrooms there in the campus, uh, a bunch of different churches, different community groups of all kinds. And in every single one of those places, he shared his story of how he was dying. But even in the midst of knowing he was dying, he had hope. And that was only possible because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I was given copies of a bunch of different newspaper articles that were written about my dad and about the stories that he was telling uh, these different groups around town. But not only that, and even more uh, precious to me, was that I was given a copy of a journal that he kept over the last several months of his life. And in this journal... Uh, which is written to my mom and a little bit to me, but, you know, really to my mom. He's reflecting on, on getting ready to leave us and knowing that even in the midst of what he was going through, that he still had hope and just trying to come to terms with what was happening. And in the very last entry, um, he's once again reflecting on dying and trying to find hope in Christ. And the very last words of that last entry, which was written just about a month or so before he passed, were the words, but there is hope. And it's those words that I decided to memorialize as my tattoo on my arm when my son uh, was born a few years ago. And um, for me, it serves as a constant reminder of what Paul is talking about here, that we have a secure hope in Christ no matter the circumstances. This is a hope that is worth telling other people about. And it's a hope that's born out of this moment by moment, day after day experience of God's grace in our lives. And so here's my my desire for us as a community, is that we would be a group of people that lives with great hope, grounded deeply in our identity in Christ. And as a church, that we would realize that we stand in grace. And out of that realization that it would grow in us more and more a sense of humility and also hopefulness. 
And may we be the kind of people that until Christ returns, tell stories of God's grace and work in our lives to his glory and his fame. So let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you are the God of hope and that whatever is going on in our lives, however good or hard it may be, that it is possible to find a secure hope in you. And it's secure because of your love for us and who you are and your character and not because of what we've done or going to do or really anything about us. And we give you praise for that. And we look forward to the day when we get to sit and stand and be with you in relationship in, in person. But until then, help us to be a people full of hope because of who we are in you. We just thank you for the chance to gather together in your name. Amen.